Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you for innumerable reasons. You are the God of all creation. You're wise in everything that you do. You know and understand all things. Everything that is good and right and true and beautiful proceeds from you and from your mind. And you have expressed your love for us in a way that is almost incomprehensible, that you would give your son uh, to pay the penalty for our sin and wrongdoing against you, our rebellion, and we thank you for the grace that you've offered through him. We thank you for this letter that your apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus to teach them and encourage them. And I pray that as we continue to look at this letter this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged by it and that we would see it as uh, your direction to us as your people. And I pray that we would seek to um, embody it and live by it and treasure it and through it come to know you more. And so we pray all of this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7, and I do appreciate all of you being here. Um, I, I wish that more of our church was willing to participate in this time, but I'm thankful for those of you that are here. I kind of enjoy this format a little bit more than preaching, actually. I've, I've, I've dreamed for many years about doing a second church service that is... You know, that has music and worship, but is more uh, like a teaching style that's more conversational, more dialogue, where people can ask questions and like, we may not get through everything that is planned to get through today. And let me just pick up again next week. Um, but it's not possible for us to do that. So the closest thing that we have to that is our adult Sunday school class. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, we're going to read through verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Good morning, everyone. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Man, just Paul's writing is so like lofty and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I studied English literature in college, and uh, I really like rich language. I like literature, and man, the Bible is just great literature. I mean, it's also the Word of God, and it's you know the means by which we come to understand salvation. But it is just good literature. Okay, so we're gonna pick this apart in detail, but let me just kind of summarize what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 3, again looking at verses 7 through 11. Um, Here Paul is talking about the glory of the gospel, 
in order to encourage the church, particularly in Ephesus, but of course the church throughout history as well, because here we are reading it. And Paul speaks of God's plan to bring the gospel to everyone. He speaks of, meaning Jew and Gentile, he speaks of the ultimate victory that the church has. He talks about the eternal purposes of God. This is not some, you know, catch-up plan when things didn't go well. This is God's eternal purpose. He talks about the confidence that we have because of our faith in Christ and his finished work. And then all of this allows Paul to see his circumstances in prison, not as something that are that is a hindrance to the gospel, but actually something that's worth rejoicing over because Paul sees God as providentially in control over all things. Okay, And that's a theme that we talked about a bit last week. And I would encourage you to think about that. Like think about your own current life circumstances. Right? God is providentially in control over those things. And uh, if things are going well for you, that's something for you to like let the roots of that faith down deep so that when things maybe later are not going so well for you, you remember what is true. Okay, God is providentially in control. Paul can say that in verse 13, I ask you not to lose hope over hope over what or heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. So Paul sees his suffering as part of God's brilliant plan, as difficult as that is, and that's something to take heart in in the midst of difficult circumstances. So verse 7 of this gospel. Um, you know, the, the word gospel, anybody know what it means? Say it again. Good news. Good news, okay. Uh, it actually comes from the Greek word euangelion, which I like sometimes to pick words apart. It's kind of fun. If I can pick this up, we can upset the teacher in the classroom here. Uh, I won't write the Greek out for you, but E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. And if you look at this word, even though you can't, um, you know, my writing is terrible. If you split this apart, this prefix here is the same one that we find in the word euthanasia. Youth and I can't spell, so forgive me. Youth and Asia. Does anybody know what this word means? We use it to talk about like medically assisted suicide, but it means good. You is the prefix good. Thanos is death, right? So the Greeks use this to talk about the good death, meaning you choose the circumstances of your death. As Christians, we would reject that idea, obviously. But here's the prefix good. So euangelion, good. And then anybody know what the word angel actually means in Greek? Messenger, Messenger right? So good news, right? So that's what the gospel means. When you see the word gospel, you're looking at the Greek word euangelion, and it means good news. But Paul says uh, this gospel, meaning there are different kinds of gospels, right? Think about all the kinds of different gospels that you might hear. Um, you know, we have political gospels, right? This politician has good news that if you vote for him, he'll make your life better. Um, you have revolutionary gospels, right? If we make this cultural revolution take place, then everybody's lives will get better. You have spiritual gospels, right? They're, we would call these things false gospels, but they claim to be good news. You know, this guy over here is teaching some spiritual... I mean, go up to, like, uh, Sedona. You know, all over Sedona, buy this rock, and it will give you spiritual blessings or whatever. 
Those are a kind of gospel, quote unquote. There's therapeutic gospels, right? Uh, do this thing in your life and you'll feel better about who you are and say this mantra and your life will be better. These kinds of, there's economic gospels, right? Um, if this indicator is present in the markets, then get ready because things are gonna get better for you financially. Basically, every single ad that you see is some kind of proclamation of a mini gospel. Buy this product, attend this seminar, use this service, and your life will be better. And um, obviously, we would reject all of those as you know, an ultimate gospel. Maybe there are elements of those things that are actually good news. But Paul says this gospel, and this gospel is unique. And we've talked about that last week. Um, you know, this is the gospel that you can be saved from your sins, not based on your work or your effort, but by grace that comes to you through faith in Christ. This is the gospel, not that some people are better than other people, and if you can belong to this group, you'll be better than everyone else, but that all people can be united. One tribe, one tongue, one nation, um, you know, is these people are united and they have conquered sin and death through the work of Christ. Um, this gospel is built not on some hope that maybe something will happen, but it's built on the words of Jesus on the cross who said, it is finished. It's a gospel that means that you have transformation available to you now in this life and then also hope after death. It's good news that you can be reconciled with God, not through anything that you might be able to do on your own, but through something that God himself has done, and therefore peace is available to you, hope is possible. So Paul says of this gospel, and actually in his, in his time period, there were people that were paid, they were rhetoricians, meaning they were good at giving speeches, and they were paid by people to basically come around and give these speeches to kind of encourage people, almost like a motivational speaker today. And Paul would distinguish himself from those people. They've got some news that they come to bring, but this gospel, is unique. And um, Paul says of this gospel, and I mean, this gospel, as we're going to see, comes from God himself, right? But Paul was made a minister of this gospel, he says in verse 7. So Paul definitely didn't choose this work for himself. If you know the story of his conversion found there in Acts chapter 9, um, he was, you know, going about his own life, doing his thing as a Jewish religious leader and a persecutor of Christians and God uh, intervened in his life and Paul in that moment was called he was appointed he was commissioned by God himself and we looked at, we looked at that a little bit last week um, and uh, the appointment that he was given uh, was a gift it was a gift of grace and it was accomplished again not by the working of Paul or some other human power but by the power of God himself so Paul says of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the power by the working of his power um, this is significant. Paul, if, uh, if you've read other of Paul's letters, then you will probably remember that Paul often points out in his letters that all of his human accomplishments and accolades mean nothing. They are not the reason why he has been given this position. His power, his wisdom, his Jewish lineage, those were not the things that selected him for this work. 
God selected him for this work. Grace is what saved him, and grace is what appointed him. None of it was by his effort. So let me ask somebody to read a couple different passages. Is there somebody who'd be willing to take Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 9? Yeah, you can do it for us, Luca, nice and loud. Philippians, it's actually right after Ephesians. So just turn a couple pages to the right. Yep. Ephesians, Philippians. You're in Philippians chapter 3. And I need somebody else to do 2 Corinthians 11. Somebody willing to read 2 Corinthians 11? All right. Uh, 11 verses 18 through 22. Luca, you're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and you're going to read verses 3 through 9. And I need you to do it nice and loud. You can even just stop right there. That's great. Because what I want to point out is Paul has lots of reason to boast about why he would be a good candidate for, uh, you know, this work, right? He's a, he's a Hebrew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. You know, he's the son of Abraham. And then he goes on to say that he counts everything as loss, right? He counts them rubbish in verse 8. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith. So I'm just highlighting here that Paul is not boasting in his own efforts when he talks about what God has done in his life in Ephesians chapter 3. So go ahead, Jason, read 2 Corinthians 11, 18 through 22. Thank you, Luca. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it, it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Um, are we, or sorry, are they Hebrews? So, uh, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Abraham? So am I. Yeah, so again, Paul's saying, look, I have lots of reason for you to um, think highly of me as a minister of the gospel. But remember what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. This is a gift of God's grace given to Paul by the working of his power, okay? Um, and this is, 
an empowerment that came according to the Holy Spirit by the grace of God, not merely to be called as a minister for the gospel, but also to be effective in that work, right? It's, it's the spirit that is going to change people's lives. It's not Paul. And also to have endurance for that work, okay? So, um, you know, there's a... What I'm getting at here is that everything that Paul is doing can be traced back to God himself, okay? Um, you know, there's an interesting scene in uh, Acts chapter 8 where Simon the magician sees the power of the gospel. And if you know that story, he basically comes to the apostles and he says, uh, he offers them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Right? So here's Simon the magician. He sees this power and he wants in on it. He thinks he can buy it. Right? Paul's saying the, the power that I have is not something that can be done by man. It comes from God. Um, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did... Um, uh, and, and when I, sorry, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul doesn't think that the power is to be found in his ability to speak well in front of people. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay, so Paul does not see himself as the source of any of this power. He's just a minister of it. And um, we're going to see that this is further expressed now as we get into verse 8, where Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Now he says that he is the least of all the saints. Um, I don't know about you, but when I compare myself to Paul, I'm sort of like, no, I think, I'm, I, think I got you beat. I think I'm one step lower than you, Paul. Um, you know, we can understand his sentiment when he says, look, I'm the least of the apostles. And the reason why is because he didn't actually follow Jesus around like the other apostles. He, um, you know, was chosen much later than the other apostles. He didn't witness the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, he did encounter the risen Jesus. Um, but he kind of came late to the game. So we can understand where Paul's like, I'm the least of the apostles. Okay, we get that. But Paul takes it to another level here, calling himself the least of all the saints. Uh, that sounds a little bit questionable to me. I don't actually question it. Um, on one level, this language is a kind of hyperbole. So hyperbole is, you know, a, a bit of uh, exaggeration for the sake of, um, you know, making a point. Um, I, I think I would be willing to gladly trade my current level of maturity for Paul's level of maturity, right? I would do that in a heartbeat. But we can think about what Paul's saying here on a couple other levels as well, okay? So I, I don't think that, um, you know, I'm not questioning the, the validity of what Paul is saying here. I think there is a reason. I think the Bible sometimes does use hyperbole to make things stand out. But there's, there's more important things here. 
Um, first, Paul is powerfully aware of his own sinfulness, his own brokenness, and that could be part of this. So if you go to Romans chapter 7, um, a lot of people know that passage where Paul writes, I don't even understand the things that I do, the things that I want to do, I don't do, the things I know I should do, I don't end up doing. I desire to do what's right, but my flesh leads me to do what's wrong. That's my paraphrase. And uh, I don't think that Paul is speaking just sort of like generically as a representation of humans there, although that's probably an element of it. I think Paul is speaking very autobiographically. Paul was not a perfect man. He longed to be righteous like Christ was righteous, and he fell short of that righteousness. Um, so Paul ends that section by saying, wretched man that I am. And I think that's how Paul perceived himself in light of the greater glory. of Like we might say, you know, here's me down here in my righteousness. And here's Paul up here. I can't draw. Here's Paul up here in his righteousness. Where is Christ in his righteousness? Like off the map, right? So Paul is not comparing himself to other people. He's comparing himself to Christ. And in light of that, he is a wretched man. Right. Um, and uh, you also have this idea in Psalm chapter eight, verse four, which says, what is man that God is mindful of him? And I think Paul probably embodies that as well. Right. Like we are the least of anything in light of who Christ is. But I think number two, the other reason why Paul can say something like this and mean it, he can say, I'm the very least of all the saints is um, think about John the Baptist, right? When John the Baptist sort of hands the, the next stage of God's ministry on earth off to Jesus, John the Baptist comes before Christ to prepare the way. One of the last things that he says in that moment is, he must increase and I must decrease. So I think Paul is not seeking the greatness of his own name. He sees himself as very low because the lower he is, the greater Christ is, right? Um, Paul doesn't see himself as essential to the work that God has carried out through him. He only sees himself as blessed to be able to be a part of it. Does that make sense? Anybody, I've, I've said a lot, so anybody want to throw any thoughts in about anything we've covered so far? You think, you think a lot of that, I mean, a lot of the humility, not to say that it's false humility or that it's probably hyperbolic in some of the ways that he's saying it, but the fact that he killed Christians, you know, I mean, that would be a hard thing for somebody to get over. I mean, yes, I mean, he's, he's persecuting and killing people, these, these same people, and I'm sure that's got to resonate and live with him the rest of his life, even though he knows he's forgiven. I mean, don't you think that that is like daily that he's got to face that? These are, you know what I mean? Like, that would be hard for me. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I think that that could be an element for sure. Um, but so we tend to just look at ourselves in, in, in comparison to other people, right? But how we should always look at ourselves is in comparison to Christ. So was killing Christians bad? Yes. But Paul's sin crucified the Son of God, right? Infinitely more offensive. And we're all guilty of that. Um, so, yes, you make a good point. I think Paul probably, you know, was um, conscious of the fact that he had come quite a long way from killing Christians to now being a servant of Christ. Um, but I'm guessing Paul also understood forgiveness. And he, 
I'm, I'm guessing he probably didn't live with like a guilty conscience because he was forgiven. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I just want to point out that here, the reason why he says, though I am the very least of all saints, is uh, because he says, to me, this grace was given, although I'm nothing. That's, uh, that's kind of what he's saying. So, in another passage, I can't remember what it is, it says, uh, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, then he's conceiving everything. Yeah. So I think what he's basically saying is, I was given this amazing gift, although I'm nothing. Right. That's, uh, that's his point. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and Paul understands that if he is nothing, then all of the power that has been displayed in his life and his ministry is attributable only to Christ, right? It's for his glory and not Paul's glory. Okay, and Paul says his message is not merely the gospel. That is true. But it is, you look at the end of verse 8 there, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Um, so an aspect of the gospel, right? There's lots of things we can say about the gospel. We can, we can boil it down to something like Christ died for your sins, and so you should place your faith in him. That is the gospel. But the gospel is also the unsearchable riches of Christ that have been made available to you. Like you can become a co-heir with Jesus of all of the riches of God himself. And so Paul gives us that angle now, right? The unsearchable riches of Christ for Jew and Gentile alike. Um, these are riches that aren't to be found in things like money or power or fame, only in Christ. Now, uh, who's got a different version? Do, does anybody's Bible use a different word than unsearchable? I really like the ESV translation. It's my preferred translation, but sometimes I come across things and I'm like, I don't like this. I wish they hadn't used the word unsearchable. unfathomable. Yours says unfathomable. Love that. That's That would be much preferred. What verse? So uh, this is uh, verse 8, the end of verse 8. Anybody have any other words? I never want to undermine anybody's confidence in what they're reading, right? Your Bible is good, and I'm thankful for different translations that give us kind of different looks at things. Um, but I wouldn't use the word unsearchable. And, and the reason is because I think you could read it and think unsearchable means that it's like not possible for me to search it out, right? Like I can't discover it. And so why even try? Uh, but, but that's not what the word means here. Paul's not saying that it's not possible to look into the riches of Christ or that it's not possible to comprehend the riches of Christ or that we're, for some reason, prohibited from seeking out the riches of Christ. Um, this word could be translated, and I prefer the translation, unfathomable. So we can do a little bit of etymology here as well. Um, a fathom was a unit of measurement. I think it was typically about six feet, and it became used uh, most often in sailing, and sailors would have this rope to make sure they weren't going to run aground on reef, on a reef, and there was a weight on the end of the rope, and the rope had measurements of every fathom, so about every six feet, and they would toss that rope with its weight over the side of the boat, and they would let it go down until it hit the bottom, and they would know how deep the water is. And uh, if the rope reached its end, then they, what they would say is that we are in a part of the ocean that is unfathomable, meaning we cannot reach the bottom of it. We cannot find the end of it, the depths of it. So I think that's what Paul has in mind here. We can comprehend some of the riches of Christ, and we should eagerly see, seek out to understand 
more of what the riches of Christ are. And all eternity we will be growing in our understanding of the riches of Christ. But at no point will we ever reach the end of it. I remember a funny commercial that was on the TV many years ago. Uh, you know, probably like, well, this was probably like 15 years ago. So the internet is already expanding, maybe not quite as big as it is today, but big, right? And it was a commercial for a, like an internet service provider. And it's this dude at his computer and you just see like the glow of the computer on his face and he's clicking and all of a sudden his face like lights up. And his computer like makes a you know kind of blinging noise, and he goes, "I I did it, I've reached the end of the internet, right?" <laughs> and it's funny because like there's no end to the internet at this point, right? It's like an an unfathomable amount of information on all of the interconnected computers. But actually, you could reach the end of the internet before you can reach the end of the riches of Christ. Okay, so Paul. Uh, I mean, I guess unsearchable is not a terrible word, but it does kind of give this idea that like, well, you shouldn't go looking. No, you'll just never find the end of it. Um, or another example of this is like, think about the universe, right? The, I think the latest statistic is the universe is now 96 billion light years from end to end, as far as they can tell, right? That is an unfathomable amount of space. like. You can travel the speed of light for 96 billion years, and that's how long it would take you to get from one side to the other. The speed of light is fast enough to go around the Earth like eight times in a second, I think. Something like that. So you could travel the speed of light, you'd never get to the end of the universe. 96 billion years is how long it would take. The riches of Christ are greater than that, right? Unfathomable. So let me ask a question here. In what ways have you personally experienced the bottomless riches of Jesus? In what ways have you tasted of that? I got a good one. I have four children. Like, in an incredibly beautifully mysterious way, my wife and I cooperated with God in his creative power to bring four everlasting souls into creation. That's incredible. And then we've been given stewardship over those souls in this life. Man, what an incredible thing. Um, how about the fact, and this is maybe kind of petty when you think about it, but it's still maybe significant. How about the fact that you live in the 21st century with like flushing toilets and air conditioning and a grocery store where you can just go pick up food? Mm. And like you're not living in 400 BC where you're like scraping by every day to like find enough food to feed your family. Yeah. Or even in the world that we live in today, that you're living here in the suburbs of Phoenix and not you know, I don't know, in the jungle in Latin America. Um, I don't know, maybe those are, that, in light of all the other things, that's kind of petty. How about the fact that you, that it has been revealed to you that Christ is the Son of God? That alone, that your soul is saved. Yes? Yeah. My husband and I, we both from a very modest family. And uh, both of us, actually, we were the first one who uh, went to college and have a college degree in our family. 
after that it had ceased to be the same but it was just like you know from where we come from we don't we're not gonna say everything but from we where I was from Haiti I mean like from the lack of food to here to the lavish life yeah I mean we don't have a palace and we don't have uh, um, but I mean still mm. I I consider this life as lavish yeah all, for all of us, whatever whatever our living circumstances are currently, we live better than 99% of every human ever in the history of the world, right? And again, that's a petty thing because it's just material, but it's still significant, right? If you went to basically any person through human history and said, hey, would you trade my life for your life? They'd be like, yeah, yeah. in a heartbeat, right? Just like it's, we are so deserving. Yes. Why did you do that to us? Yes. And yeah yeah the fact that you can speak the fact that you have eyesight the fact that you can that you know how to read that you've been given an education I mean we could just we could sit here all day and list all the things um, and again those are just tiny things compared to like seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus himself being given life eternal being called a son or daughter of the Most High God um, living forever in his presence, being given the opportunity to serve him. Anybody else want to throw anything else in there? How have you seen the, the riches of Christ in your life? Well, I encourage you to ponder that because it's worth pondering because it will lead you. Often we can go to God and we can say, man, God, I have so many problems and I have so many needs and I, I can just see the negative things going on in the world and whatever. And the fact of the matter is if we refocus how we think about everything, we have so much to give God praise and thanks for and uh, so much to just adore him and worship him for. All right, verse 9. So Paul says uh, he was given this grace to preach. Verse 9 then, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. I like that Paul connects the create, like God who created all things to the mystery that was hidden in God because it just reminds us that the broken world that we're now living in was actually part of the plan. Um, meaning that, you know, God wasn't caught off guard when Adam and Eve plunged all of creation into sin, right? Uh, he knew that this was going to unfold this way, and uh, that's maybe a part of the mystery. So Paul's ministry, some of it was to bring to light this mystery hidden for ages. We've already talked about the mystery. We did that a lot last week, so I'm not going to go into the details there. If you want to revisit the audio on our website, you can listen to that again. But again, this was always the plan of God. It simply was hidden, right? And to some degree, it still is hidden. You can ask the question, like, why did God allow Adam and, excuse me, Adam and Eve to eat the fruit? And there are answers we can give to that, right? Um, it's so that man would move beyond innocence to virtue. We can say it was for the glory of God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can say it was so that God and man might be united through the Spirit of God li living in 
human flesh, right? Like you are a vessel for the spirit of God. These are all things that Adam and Eve didn't experience pre-fall. So there are some answers to that. But like, you know, if we say, why did God do this for the, and then, and then we answer for the glory of God, that like sort of answers the question, but I don't know about you, it doesn't quite like finish scratching the itch for me, right? Um, and so some of it remains mystery and maybe we won't ever know. Maybe we'll just say like, because he's God and that's a sufficient answer. Um, but implied here is not only that God created all things, but that he created them expressly to accomplish his hidden purpose. So once again, this is not plan B. This is the plan unfolding exactly as it is supposed to unfold. Now, verse 10, I think, is really, really fascinating where we see another element of this mystery. Paul says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I would say that one of my big beefs as like a pastor is that people just do not conceptualize the church properly. You know, we talk about going to church and we talk about church buildings and those things aren't in and of themselves bad, but the church, the way Jesus envisioned it as a community of love, as a vehicle that would kick down the doors of hell, as a vehicle that would terrorize the spiritual forces of darkness, as this entity that would come to spread over the face of the earth to rule and reign over human hearts, um, as the beloved bride of Christ. Like, we just don't conceptualize the church, I think, nearly the way that Jesus did. And so, you know, people just very quickly trade churches and, you know, they go to church seeking another kind of entertainment. Uh, you've probably heard me mention it before. I think a lot of people, well, I'll just give you an example. This week on Twitter, I like to just follow people to kind of see what's going on. I don't really post much, but... Um, this week on Twitter, there were lots of videos of churches doing like summer at the movies. And so this Sunday, we're going to teach on how the Barbie movie reflects, you know, Christian things. And we're going to preach on how uh, Jurassic Park or Mission Impossible or the Mario movie, you know, like intersects with the Bible. And, uh, you know, it's cool to see in culture the supremacy of Christian themes because you can't escape these things. But that's, that's not what church is for, right? To, like, go to church and hear them talk about the Mario movie and be like, and it tells us about Jesus. Is so, the, what the church has become, and you've probably heard me say this phrase again or before, is therapeutic moralistic deism. Right? So people go to church looking for some therapy. They want to feel good. Moralistic, meaning that they get a sense of like there is a right and a wrong and I should be encouraged to do what's right. And deistic, meaning it has a vague concept that there is a God, a higher power that I should be connected to. Right? But uh, look at what Paul says here. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
So the church is God's vehicle for building his body, for bringing sanctification to the saints, for conquering the world, for uniting humanity under one identity, for revealing his wisdom over all things, for saving souls out of damnation, for spreading the word and the gospel, for establishing his kingdom rule and reign on earth, for proclaiming the glory of God and the... Uh, excellence of Jesus Christ. The church is God's vehicle for judging the world for its rebellion and sin. It's his vehicle for honoring the Son with a great gift, right? His bride. The church is the thing through which God is going to fill the earth with his embodied Holy Spirit. Like, we need to think rightly about church. We need to have a biblical ecclesiology. And that doesn't mean we can't do the things that the church does, right? It doesn't mean we can't gather on Sunday in a particular place and, you know, sing our songs with our guitars and our drums and those kinds of things. It just means we need to understand that that is a very, very small aspect of what the, the Bible says the church is. Okay? Anybody want to throw any thoughts in on that? Yes? So what I find fascinating about this text is that it says that um, the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God to the angels. Yeah, that's where I'm going next. Okay. But go ahead, please. Should I? Yeah, sure. Uh, so then, uh, well, that means that um, the angels are watching the church all over the world, and the, the message they get is how wise God is. So then we look at passages in the Bible that tell us what the angels are doing. And when we see that the angels are desiring to look into the gospel, and so that means that as God is growing his church by his word, that is that work all over the earth, the angels are, are, um, are just uh, amazed at the wisdom of God that he's actually saving people from all over this uh, cursed earth that has sin and, and, de and deception all over the place and lies. And then with the, the church that is the pillar and ground of the truth, he's just redeeming countless people. There's that. But then in Hebrews, it says that we've not come to the mountain that cannot be touched, uh, where it was Mount Sinai, but it says to the heavenly Jerusalem with the innumerable angels. So when we are in the church worshiping God, the Bible says Christ is, is, is in our midst in a special way, but not just Christ. The, all the angels... Yeah. And there are all the passages that just yeah. just that, right? It's like, wow. Yeah. If God, God is magnified in his wisdom uh, through the church. Yeah, love it. Amen. So I, I'm going to just keep going with that theme. We see here in verse 10 that Paul predominantly has in mind uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? That's what he said. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I would say that if you are including the greater in something, then you also get the lesser, right? So if the church is showing to uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the manifold wisdom of God, then included in that would be that God is showing his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities of the earthly places as well. Now, they're going to still reject it and rebel, but it's being revealed, right? But Paul predominantly focuses on, focuses on this. And um, 
this is just a reminder the church is not only engaged in a great battle here on earth but also in the spiritual realm and we live in a very materialistic culture a very materialistic age so it's easy for us to forget this that our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood turn to ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. so i think that it's really important for us to see this is in the same letter right so paul i i think it, it makes a lot of sense um, for us to see these two passages as kind of speaking to one another. And it says here, uh, let me read it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I think it's really fair for us to kind of bring these two texts together. When Paul is referring to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, um, he, I, I think he does have in mind that angels are looking into the wisdom of God. But I, Yes, but I, I think he also has in mind this idea that the church is conquering the spiritual forces of darkness. So, so um, I just want to be clear. Yeah. So you're saying, so when he says the heavenly places, he's talking about the spiritual realm, right? Yes. He's talking about not just the angels, but... Yes, okay. absolutely. And uh, actually, um, quite often when you find these two words together, rulers and authorities, it is referring particularly to evil rulers and authorities. Mm -hmm. um, so what we could say is, yes, the angels are seeing the conquering of the church and God's salvation over souls, and they are giving God worship for his wisdom. And the spiritual forces of evil are seeing the church prevail against all of their efforts, and they are cowering in fear at the name of Christ, right? Um, we have to be careful here to not fall into too much speculation, though, because the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about this. This is one of those areas where sometimes our curiosity can suck us in to speculation that goes a little too far. Um, but there's some, there is a fair amount of evidence, and I, I'm not going to give you all of it for the sake of time this morning, but there is a fair amount of evidence that what, what happened when the evil angels rebelled against God is they essentially set themselves up as minor deities in opposition to God. So where do, you know, where do the Aztecs get their idea of this uh, God that they need to give human sacrifices to? Where do the Egyptians get the idea of Ra? Where do the Hindus get the idea of um, Shiva? Uh, these kinds of demonic powers are trying to set themselves up as, as gods in opposition to God. We would call them idols. Um, and so it might appear that these cosmic powers have us seriously outgunned when you consider how small a thing the church is compared to just everything that's going on in the world right now, right? Like, if you walked in the door of Maricopa Springs on a Sunday morning, you could look around and be like, this is kind of a pathetic, powerless little group of people, you know, in this podunk little suburban town in America. Like, what is amazing or exceptional about what's going to take place here? And uh, based on just what you perceive with your eyes, we don't have a lot of power. We have very little political influence. We don't have a ton of money. Like, our church is just a small thing. But again, we need to think rightly about what the church is. Like, 
when our people are gathered together, not just here on Sunday morning, but in family churches, even families around the dinner table, um, in small groups as they're taking place, Bible studies throughout the work, throughout the week. If you think about the world in a spiritual sense as this dark place, these are lighthouses of brilliant light that literally terrify the enemies of God. So the church is a small thing compared to the other world systems that are at work. The political systems, the military systems, the banking systems. But Paul tells us through the advancement of the gospel, the church is advancing and gaining ground and is being victorious over these powers. Um, They're being shown the greater wisdom and power of God. And again, I love it because that we, we find this sort of inversion, right? Um, and why can't I think of the verse right now? I should have written it down. Um, but the, what the world calls folly is actually the wisdom of God. And, and the world would call the wisdom of God folly, and yet it's the power of God, right? And so um, I just love the inversion of this because you would look at the church and you would go, yeah, pretty unimpressive, and yet God is using it to conquer the world, right? Through Christ, under the banner of his grace and his, his glory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. So there, there you have that phrase again, rulers and authorities, just like Paul says here in Ephesians 3. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now, he could mean they're just, you know, uh, emperors, but I think what he has in mind is ultimately the spiritual forces. Any other thoughts or questions on that? Comments? Yes. As you were uh, talking, I I remember the James three compares the the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. Yeah. And it says. Yes. Verse seventeen, James three seventeen, but the wisdom from above is first pure. So the reason it matters is because this is going to tell us what the church uh, displays. Mm-hmm. It displays the wisdom of God, so then you can just replace it with what follows. Right. It displays first, uh, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so then, therefore, the church shows the purity of God, the the fact that God is specific, makes peace. The first, the church shows that God is gentle, that God is, uh, I would have to, to look at the other passages on this one, but reasonable, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. So then it's interesting because it means that uh, uh, it has to be because the church is doing something that's similar, that displays the character of God, right? Yes. So as you were talking about this picture of like the earth being full of darkness and the church being a, a beacons of light in different places, yeah. when you look at that and you, you can see the church is a beacon of uh, peace yes. all over this uh, earth. Yes. A beacon, how about this one, of purity, even though we feel like all still, yeah. if God looks at it, he sees that, wow, this is... And in love, by your love, you will show that you are my disciples. Yes. She's there. Beautiful. Thank you for bringing that in. I love that passage. That's a great passage. That, whenever I'm dealing with conflict, that's one that I love to go to. Because what does 
what does the wisdom of God look like in practice, particularly when there's conflict between believers? But yeah, you know, I got the image of Moses glowing going off the yeah. mountain, you know, and just trying and not thinking about that. But you know, when we're breaking, you know, going to Bible studies and working at church, yeah. that we take that with us. You know, we 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 you know radiate, you know, yeah. and, and our lives are affected, and people around us are affected because of it. And it's just it's a cool image, man. Amen. Think about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remembered the other passage that I, I should have written down, but let, so let me read it for you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, right? So again, you could take you know a, a powerful politician and say, my church is greater than your political power. And they might laugh at you and say, your church is just this tiny little thing. Mm. And yet we know that actually the power of the church through Christ by the Spirit is infinitely greater than anything this world has to offer. Okay, so then verse 11 here, Paul says that all of this was according to the eternal purpose. Now notice that he doesn't say that God had in Jesus Christ. He says what? That has been realized. So this began as an idea in the mind of God, a purpose that he had. Remember all the way back to um, verse 9, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. It was an idea in the mind of God that has now become realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So um, maybe you've heard the phrase, realized eschatology. Um, what's meant by that is that even though Christ has not yet returned, that the fullness of that reality is actually at work, right? I guess I shouldn't say the fullness. The, the precursor to that reality is already realized. Um, so this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you, I think the so is kind of like a therefore, therefore I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Okay, so again, all of this unfolding is according to God's plan. Um, God has been successfully carrying it out. Nothing is... Uh, successfully opposing God's effort to um, redeem man and destroy sin and conquer death and build his church. Um, and again, Paul says it's already been realized through the work of Christ. And because it's been accomplished, remember, what did Jesus say on the cross? It's finished, right? The work of your salvation is finished. Ultimately, the conquering of the spiritual Opposition is finished. Uh, the Colossians 2.15 verse, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's not a future tense. It's past tense. Okay. Um, 
Therefore, because of all of that, we have boldness and access to God. So our boldness is not based on us, right? We're the least of the saints. Our boldness is based on the finished work of Jesus. Um, Alistair Begg most often tells the story, and it was circulating around Easter. Um, but, you know, the, he, he kind of tells the story of uh, the man on the cross next to Jesus who said, you know, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And uh, he, he tells the story of that man coming to the gates of heaven, right? And um, the, uh, the gatekeeper there kind of looking at him being like, you don't, you don't look like much, you know? Who, who do you think you are to approach the gates? Like, tell me your theological perspective on this, 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 and this, and which denomination are you? And who was, your, who was the person who discipled you? And what was the date of your baptism? And the man being like, I don't, I don't know. And so the guy at the gate's like, well, what are you doing here? And the man says, well, the, the, the guy on the middle cross said I could come, right? That's it. The man on the middle cross said I could come. So we have boldness, not only in this life, but also before God, because the man in the middle cross said that we could come stand before God based on his merits, his efforts, not based on our righteousness or our efforts. It's because of the finished work of Christ that we have confidence. And so Paul himself is very bold to say, I don't see my place in prison as an obstacle to the gospel. Um, I don't see my place in prison here, my friends, as a losing position, right? The world would look at you and say, you mean your greatest apostle, your greatest preacher, your greatest church planter is rotting away in prison? You are on the losing team, my friends. And Paul would say, actually, this is all part of the plan. The victory has already been won. Um, Paul is anticipating the great riches of Jesus Christ that are already his. And then he would gladly suffer as a result uh, what he is suffering for the church in Ephesus so that they too might know the glory of Jesus Christ, share in the confidence that he has, understand that the riches are already theirs by faith in the work of Christ. And so I think, you know, as we end here, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Um, I think we can find a lot of encouragement to not lose heart in our own suffering, right? Again, because Christ has the victory. Romans 8, verse 17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So don't misunderstand. Paul understood that his life of serving God would be through the path of suffering, but he still proclaimed boldness because of everything that Christ had done. I'll have to end there. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would give us great faith and confidence in the work that your son Jesus has accomplished for us. We thank you that we are heirs in the unfathomable riches of Christ. Um, we thank you that through your manifold wisdom, you have put to shame the rulers and authorities that are in opposition to you. We thank you that all of this is according to your eternal purposes and that it's been realized through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that we get to belong to the church that is this ever-victorious, triumphant uh, organism that you have put your own Holy Spirit into. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the same kind of stout-heartedness that Paul himself shows in these verses to just trust you and to put all of our confidence in you. In Christ's name, amen.